Well, good evening and welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. It's so good to have you joining us yet again as we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And may I commend to you again, if you haven't done so, I want to re recommend you pick up a thin commentary that we're going to be using to serve us as we study through this text. Now, that commentary is by Danny Aiken, and it's entitled the Christ-Centered Exposition Series on the Sermon on the Mount. Don't look for the volume on Matthew. Look for the Sermon on the Mount. There's a unique one just for those three chapters in the book of Matthew, and I commend that you get that. It'll be a great resource. It'll serve you well. That whole series is real helpful. It's a real accessible uh, way to understand the Bible in detail. Pick up that commentary. It's going to serve us as we study this text. In addition, we provide a free resource it's a PDF outline of all the lessons, and we attach it to this video, or, or you can find it on the church website when you go over to the resource page. You might want to pull that up on your computer or maybe print it out if you can at home, and that'll serve you as we study tonight. Now, last week we began our study on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, which of course that sermon is recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we began with the first 12 verses, which is famously known as the Beatitudes. It kind of describes who a Christian is, the, their character, really the core of who a Christian ought to be. What we're going to do today is we're going to pick up in verse 13, and you're going to notice a shift. Having described who a Christian is in those first 12 verses or so, beginning in verse 13, you see Jesus begin to shift a little bit and demonstrate exactly how Christians ought to manifest, practically speaking, who they are. So he describes who we are by nature as born-again believers. And then beginning in verse 13, which is where we'll pick up tonight, you're going to start to see evidence of what that means practically in terms of the way we live. So let's hear from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13. I'd like Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to begin reading in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, you are the light of the world. Your city set on a hill it cannot be hidden. Now, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, I ask that you would come and that you would speak in and through me in spite of me. Minister to your people through this unusual medium of video. And would you help us see, O oh God, the implications and the weight of your calling on us to be salt and light. Do this in my own heart, I pray, and in the hearts of those listening. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. You know, pessimism can be paralyzing. And man, is it easy to be pessimistic as a believer in this day and age. You just look around and you can see a world that is the opposite of salt and light. Salt being a natural preservative that was used for centuries to keep, for example, meat from spoiling. You can't help but look out into this culture and see a world that is decaying, that is rotting. 
Light being the opposite of darkness, mercy. It doesn't take much to observe that this world is growing all the more dark. It's easy to get pessimistic and start to think, what on earth could a Christian do anymore? I mean, do we have any real ability to be useful, to have influence in a culture where we are all the more growing, uh, becoming a minority? Uh, is there any real hope that the gospel is going to have a transformative effect when all we see is a culture that continues to devolve, not genuinely evolve in terms of its morality? What do we do here? How do, we, how, do we, how do we have any hope as believers in the midst of a world that is decaying and growing all the more dark? You see, it's real easy to see Jesus' characteristics of a Christian in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Again, I would call those the Beatitudes. It's real easy to say, how on earth could a person that looks like this actually be useful and influential anymore? If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Three, how could somebody who's poor in spirit be useful? How could those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, really can the merciful be useful anymore? The pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes? How is a somebody like that ever going to be useful anymore? How can somebody like that ever make a difference? Mercy is it easy to get pessimistic, to get discouraged, to get despondent when you think about who a Christian is and what the world really is. Which is why Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 13, should stun us. Because I want you to notice in verses 13 through 16, Jesus declares that he himself is not pessimistic, though he understands reality. Jesus does not have some sort of unusually ridiculous optimistic view based off just hope and chance. Jesus declares, beginning in verse 13, that he has great hope that believers who look like Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and following, that people like that can be unusually useful and influential in this fallen world. Indeed, Jesus declares in these few verses in Matthew chapter 5 that the Christian life is, by definition, a distinct life. I want you to feel that. When Christ calls us to Himself, He calls us to live a distinct life. Life And the, what I mean by a distinct life is a life that really does look different than everybody else around you. And it looks different for a reason. And what Jesus illustrates for us through these word pictures is that distinctness that we are called to, it's that very distinctness that He believes, and this is God Himself speaking, so it's true, He knows is going to have a transformative effect. So I want you to see and feel with me tonight that if Christ has saved you, if you have turned from darkness to wonderful light, if you have tasted and seen that He is good, if you are a new creation, I want you to hear this. I need to be reminded of this daily. 
I have been called, you have been called to a distinct life, something different. Now, if your life doesn't see or appear or feel different than those around you, let this be a warning. Let this be a caution. Let this be a flag being waved to help you see, Lord, help me to examine myself to see if I'm in my, the faith. Lord, help me to see what are those aspects of my life that have grown complacent. What parts of me have been compromised? Oh God, I want to be salt and light as you've called me to be. I want you to see there's really two layers to this distinct life that Christ has called us to. Number one, if you're taking notes, mark this down. He's called us to have, he's, he's called us to be rather distinctly useful. Distinctly useful. And we see that in the word picture in verse 13 where he says, You are the salt of the earth. Now notice, he says you, not y'all. He is focusing on you and me and he is saying you are something. Not you should be, not you could be, not you might be, not you ought to be. He says you are salt. Now salt's interesting. It gets more of a bad rap these days because salt, you know, most doctors will tell you is not terribly good for you. It can raise your blood pressure. It does a whole host of things and they always are telling you to limit your salt. Now, but salt back in this day, and of course you always need to read the Bible in context, in particular its original historical context, in Jesus' day, salt had unique properties. Salt was a very valuable substance. Salt was one of those things that they depended on in a day and age when they didn't have a freezer or a refrigerator. So, of course, if you caught some fish or you had some meat, well, you and I both know if you set that meat out and it's not refrigerated or frozen, it'll spoil in no time. But salt, as it can today, if it was applied to that raw meat, as you surely well know, it would have a preserving, purifying effect on that meat. So salt was just a very valuable resource to have. It enabled you to actually keep meat around and not lose it, particularly if you were on a boat or something. And in addition, salt also had some healing properties. It could uh, be used to help heal wounds, am amongst other things. It had an antiseptic property. So salt was obviously valuable in that regard as well. And so this common substance that anybody hearing Jesus originally would have understood and kind of had a, a good grip on understanding how it's used in their culture, it's bizarre when they hear Jesus say, hey, just like that salt is used to preserve rotting meat, and just like this salt is used to heal a wound, and just like this salt is used to season or flavor food so that when you eat it, it's, it's enjoyable, so too you are salt of the earth. In other words, if you are in Christ, if you have been called by my name, if you are as the Beatitudes describe, then you must recognize that you are salt of the earth. So I want you to see this. He has commissioned us as believers to be something countercultural, to be something that nobody else is. He's called us to be salt. In other words, He's called us to be those who prevent decay in this world. So just think with me for a second. One of the biggest implications of Jesus describing us as salt is He is telling us by inference that the world is rotting. 
that it's decaying, that it's falling apart. In other words, Jesus was a realist. He didn't have this pie-in-the-sky utopian view of mankind. He recognized that left to its own devices, mankind will always decay. The, the Bible's replete with examples. I mean, just as soon as Adam and Eve had a kid, their son Cain killed their other son Abel. And then you see just a few chapters later, everything fall apart. God floods the world. He brings Noah, this one righteous man, through uh, in the safety of the ark. And then he's drunk and all passed out just a chapter after the flood's over. And you see everything fall apart. Sodom and Gomorrah is found just 20 chapters into the Bible. You're not, you just see this decline that is so rapid and it's so repetitive. And he recognizes, Jesus recognizes, that left to its own devices, mankind would literally rot away. But out of His infinite loving kindness and grace and mercy, He has redeemed a people for Himself. He has opened our eyes to behold Him. He has called us out of darkness into wonderful light, and He has commissioned us to go and restrain the evil impulses of this age. He has called us to be salt, to prevent this decay that is continuing to come. Now, this would be a, a whole sermon in and of itself, and time doesn't permit us to go into all the various ways that could be manifested in our lives. So let's just, let's just uh, simplify it with one simple statement. When Christ calls us to prevent decay, it basically means this. He calls us to resist unrighteousness. We as believers have been called to call a spade a spade, to not pacify sin, to not make light of sin. We must take sin seriously and we must recognize it for what it is and flee from it and call others to flee from it. We are called as believers to show a dying world that sin is what sin is. Now, if you just left it there, if you just finished the analogy there, it sounds like he's calling us to be, you know, pretty intolerable people. He sounds like he's calling us to be just those that are telling everybody else what they've done wrong and walking around like we've done everything right. And we're just those that are standing on the street corner shouting at people, full stop, period. But salt didn't just have that property of preserving. Salt also had a seasoning property. And I think this is pretty clear in the context of verse 13. One of the reasons why Jesus uses this analogy of us being salt of the earth is because salt makes something desirable. Salt brings flavor, spice to life, so to speak. Salt has this ability to make us thirsty and to make us enjoy that which we are consuming. You, you've had something that lacks salt. It tastes no good. Salt's one of those miracle spices that just really brings out the flavor of anything. And you also know if you get a bag of french fries that are super salty, you're going to be thirsty all afternoon. And I think what Jesus is drawing out for us in this analogy is when he calls us to be salt of the earth, he is calling us to live in such a way, not just that we resist unrighteousness, but that we promote righteousness. So there's both and. We're resisting sin and we're promoting holiness. In other words, we are living in such a way that an outside world will look in and say, what is the hope they have? What is different about them? Why, why do they seem so happy living in this restrained way? And they long for what you have. There is a thirst that can begin to be developed. Well, they'll see what is satisfying them. What is so different? What do they have? What is their hope? 
This is the hope of the gospel of Jesus, of course, that has caused us to see that all the false promises that this dying, dark world offers are empty. They won't satisfy. And we have at last tasted and seen that God is good. And consequently, we live in such a way that an outside world will look in and say, what are they tasting? I wish I had what they've had to drink. There's something different there. This is the commission to be salt of the earth. But I've only read the first sentence of that verse because Jesus has a lot to say about this salt in the latter half of verse 13 because he says if salt has lost its taste well, how shall its saltiness be restored it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you see what Jesus is saying is salt is no good if it's not used moreover salt is no good if it's been compromised and I want you to see how easy it is for you and I as believers, even we who have tasted and seen that God is good, how easy it is for us to be characterized by the latter half of verse 13. So many of us are like salt stuck in the salt shaker, still sitting on the table. It does no good at all if it is not applied to the meat. So many of us are like salt that's been contaminated, which in that day and time, salt, if it got mixed in with other impurities, it would take away its preserving power. It would become literally worthless. It was no good. I mean, that's why he uses that description. It might as well just be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You might as well just throw it on the ground because it's no good anymore. And so many of us are like this. On the one hand, we, we know we've been called to be salt. We know we've been called to resist unrighteousness and to promote righteousness. We know we've been called to have this salty, countercultural uh, flavor in this world, and yet we just have stayed in the salt shaker. We're just stuck there. We're not, we're not in the midst of unbelievers. We're not helping people see the hope we have within us. We've just kept quiet. We're not applied to a dark, deca uh, decaying world. We just hole up. We, we, we cloister away. We aren't living in this world. Jesus is calling us to go out and to be salt in the world. But be careful because you may find yourself compromised. Like the salt of old that would get mixed with impurities and becomes no good, so many of us can appear like compromised salt. We know Jesus is who He says He is and yet we have just been We've been tainted with materialism. We've been tainted with, you know, this overly political mindset where everything becomes a fight at any turn. And we act, even if we don't truly believe it, our life demonstrates that all of our hope is in a political party or in some next election. We have to recognize as believers that to be salt in this world means we must live in such a way that our hope is not in anything temporal. And is that so difficult to do? It is so easy to live like everybody else in such a way that anybody on the outside looking in would say, oh, well, he's just, he disagrees with me, but he's just another partisan dude. Or he's just like me, but he's just another materialistic guy. It's so easy to live like everybody else. And God has called us to be salt, which means he's called us to live in such a way that our life 
testifies. Our, our genuine walk with the Lord testifies to a different path. The very way we comport ourselves is so stunningly different that people from the outside look in and say, what is going on here? There's something salty about this. There's something distinct about this. There's something different about this. In short, there's something useful here. There's something attractive. There's something unusual going on here. This is the life we've been called to. Brothers and sisters, we are salt of the earth. And beware, search your own heart to see what aspects of your life deny, defy the gospel you claim to hold dear. Would your neighbor, your unbelieving spouse, your parents, your children, your siblings, would they be able to just observe your life and say, I may not agree with them, but it's very clear they believe sincerely what they say they believe? It's very clear that their hope is in Christ and not in something else. It's very clear that no matter what transpires, they have an unshakable confidence that this God they claim to believe in is real and reigning. Oh God, would you move in my heart that my ministry, my very life, my marriage, my fatherhood, my, my position as a son, as a grandson would be demonstrable. It would be clear to all who see that I am indeed sincere when I say that Jesus is my only hope. We are called to be salt of the earth. But I want you to see there's two layers, as I mentioned already, to this distinct life that Christ has called us to. We're not just called to be distinctly useful. We've also been called, number two, to be distinctly influential. And we see this in the next analogy where Jesus describes, beginning in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And then he goes on and he says, a city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But rather, what do they do? They put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Now here's the truth. You don't have to be a believer to see that the world is dark. This is part of common grace that all mankind can look out and see something is not right. There is an angst in all mankind. There is a, an inherent recognition in all peoples that there is something wrong that needs to be made right. There is a darkness that needs to be dispelled. And there have been many efforts for centuries to dispel this light. Incidentally, uh, one of the great intellectual movements of our time is called the Project of the Enlightenment. It began a few centuries ago, and it has its roots as, as many as five, six, seven centuries ago in the Renaissance, and it has been building for centuries this mindset that if mankind can just get enough knowledge, just get enough understanding of this material world, we can at last dispel the darkness and bring enlightenment to mankind. Now, by His grace, there have been many great advances thanks to the Enlightenment. I mean, we are the beneficiaries of medicine and science and a whole host of political uh, maneuvers that have afforded us the democracy, for example, we live in. Nevertheless, all philosophers, all secular scientists, all those engaged in the project of the Enlightenment, they can't ultimately dispel the darkness. Try as they might, 
There is still a hole within. There is still a darkness that pervades. And you know this every time you go to a funeral and you sit in a mass of humanity that shares one common love for the deceased, but oftentimes is wildly represented by different worldviews. But there seems to be this cohesive concern that surely this isn't the end. Surely there's something beyond this. Surely there's something not right about this. Otherwise, death would be just a normal material process, just like any other thing. But mankind knows there's something not right about this. Death can't be celebrated like this. Try as we might, there's something wrong here. And this is why Jesus breaks into mankind and he describes himself as the light of the world. He is that which all enlightenment thinkers have been searching for and longing for and questioning. He alone can dispel the light and he has called us to in turn be as he is. We have been called to in turn be light in this world. Now, it's tough to be light in the world because light stands out. The minute you are a light, everything is drawn to you. Every eye turns to you. You can't help but look at the light. I remember going in a cave many years ago in southwest Missouri, and we went down there. We had little flashlights on, and they asked us all to turn the flashlights off. And when we turned the flashlights off, I have never experienced that measure of darkness. So dark, you couldn't see an inch in front of your face. It was the most unsettling darkness I've ever seen. And then the leader alone turned on just a little tiny flashlight. It was one of those like little pencil type ones. It would have made no difference in normal daylight. He turned it on and that mild little light was blindingly brilliant in that dark, dark cave. And Christ has called you and I small, weak, uneducated, uh, unsophisticated as any of us may feel we are, He has called us to be a light in this world. And He is reminding us, listen, don't, don't fear. Listen, don't trick yourself into thinking that this is not a project worth giving your life to. Don't hide it. See, you can't in the Final analysis, hide your light. If Christ has indeed saved you, if He truly has changed your life, you will be a new creation. He will have transformed you from the inside out. And we see this in verse, the latter half of verse 14. He says, a city on a hill can't be hidden. <laughs> in other words, you, you, put a, you build a city out on a hill, you're going to see that for miles around. Any of the light in that city, it can't be hidden. And the whole illustration is, if He really has saved you, you can't hide this. You can't pretend it's not real. So that's a good question to ask. Do most of your coworkers not know you're a believer? Do many of your family members not really know much about what you believe? That's an indicting prospect. Oh, consider, do people know this? Because if I am in Christ, I can't hide this light. I, this is part of me. If I am in Christ, I am a new creation. My light should be shining forth. So just remember, first off, you cannot hide this influence. I want you to see also, secondly, you should not hide this influence. For look with me, if you will, at verse 15. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you light a candle and then cover it up? This is they put it on a stand so it gives light to all 
in the house. That's why there's all these big candle stands. So the light is in a prominent spot and it will uh, give light to the room. And the point he's simply making is, listen, the reason I've made you a light is because you're supposed to give this off. This is what I've called you to. I have saved you and changed you so that you might illuminate who I am to a lost world. Have you ever wondered why when the Lord saves you, He doesn't just take you instantly? Since eternity with Him is infinitely better and more glorious than this temporal reality, why wouldn't He just take us? He hasn't because He has commissioned us. He has a calling on our lives to illuminate who He is to a lost and dying world, that they might see, that they might see, that they might see. In particular, verse 16 says, See your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. You see, you can't hide it. You shouldn't hide it, and indeed, you must not hide it because this is why He's called us here. He has called us to demonstrate the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ, His gospel, to demonstrate this perfect, wonderful news to a lost, dark, dying, decaying, despondent world. And in so doing, the promise of verse 16 is that there will be many who see, they see, what's going on, and by God's grace will give glory to Him in heaven. In other words, there is a way we can live that testifies to the words on our mouths. Our lives must comport with what we claim to believe. The prayer I pray, probably more than any other prayer for my own soul, is, Oh God, help my life reflect the testimony I bear on my lips. As a pastor, I teach the Bible multiple times a week. As a pastor, everybody assumes that, you know, I am, and most pastors are just going to be a living embodiment of what we say, and I'm not. Oh, my word, so often I'm not. Just ask my wife, which is why I have to pray. I have to intercede for my own soul every morning and say, oh, God, do this work in me. Help me to be, as you have called me to be, salt in a dying world, light in a dark, dark world. And so let's conclude our time tonight with just a few questions that I want you to ponder as you reflect on this text. What's keeping you from being light? Truly, consider it in your own heart, maybe write it down. What are those factors that are making it tempting to just hide the light? Keep the salt in the proverbial salt shaker. Is it fear of retribution, persecution, which is the content of verses 11 and 12? Is it fear that you may not get the promotion you've been working really hard for? Uh, is it a busyness that you've allowed to just overtake the calling Christ has placed on your life? What is it? What's that thing that's keeping you? And lay it before the Lord tonight. And ask God to so move in your heart and move in your life. That verses 13 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5, this famed Sermon on the Mount would be a call, would be a call to you this year. Would you join me as we pray to that end? Father in heaven, we need you to remind us anew that this calling is not theoretical. This is a mandate from heaven. Indeed, this is who we are. We are salt. We are 
light. Oh God, I pray that you would apply us to a decaying world. I pray, oh God, that you would illuminate a darkening world through our witness. We thank you, O oh God, for the grace you've had on us. Season us with this grace so that those who see us would not give us glory or shame your name, but give glory to our Father in heaven. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.